wonderful reminder this morning that our God saves and that our God is still the God of the city. Amen? Amen. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Would you take a moment, welcome those around you. All right, you may return to your seats and you may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Northside Baptist Church. We're so glad that you are here to worship with us today um, on this wonderful Sunday, this Labor Day weekend, so you get an extra day off, maybe some of you do, and um, so hopefully we can use that for the glory of God. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're so thankful that you are here today. Uh, if this is your first time, you are our guest. We want to know how we can pray for you and encourage you. There's a couple ways you can let us know this is your first time. There's a, a QR code in the bulletin. You can scan that, fill out just a few questions about yourself online, or there should be a connection card um, out there. You can take a moment um, and fill that out. And again, we're delighted that you're here with us. If there's any way that we can um, pray for you, encourage you, please don't hesitate to let me know, uh, Pastor Gary know, or, or anyone else, just say, hey, will you take a moment and pray with me? And in just a moment, we're going to spend some time um, in prayer. But before we do that, let me make just a couple of announcements. Our senior friends will meet this Thursday at 10 a.m. right here at church. And we're going to go to Debbie Dunnigan's house. And we're going to have a time of just praying over her and Ellen's new place. And then also some lunch um, as well. So hopefully you can uh, be part of that. Next Sunday, right after church, we're going to have a spaghetti dinner. This is something we did like two months after I came and I loved it. And then obviously COVID happened and the whole world shut down. So what we're going to do is after the worship service next week, we're going to have spaghetti um, over in the fellowship hall right out there. And all of the proceeds are going to go towards the trip that some folks are going on um, in Ecuador, going in January to Ecuador to help with the moss. So you've heard about our partnership with the moss how we're helping them, praying for them, and we're going to send a team, and they're going to do some work there, and you'll hear more about the work um, as it gets closer. And so, listen, we want you always to do three things when it comes to missions. Number one, we want you to pray, to keep praying. Number two, we want you to be willing to go, whether you go across the street to your neighbor 
or whether you go to another country. We have to be people who live on mission. But then the third thing is we give. We give to help and support missionaries. And some of you may not be able to go to Ecuador in January, or you think, hey, I'm not going to be able to go in the foreseeable future. But you can give to help those who are going. It's not cheap to go on a mission trip. And so we want to encourage you to come, grab some food, donate. All of that goes for a good cause to help those who are going on the mission trip so they don't have to uh, raise or spend as much money. So please um, do that. We would greatly appreciate it. There's some other announcements in there that I'll draw your attention to um, at the end of the service. But before uh, we pray, I've tried to make it a habit. I don't ever want to single people out. But when we have somebody go through something and they make it back to the church for the first time, we don't try to embarrass them, but we just like to give God the praise. And so I saw Miss Carol Marler back there and her husband, Tim. And so Miss Carol, you guys have, have been made aware of what happened to Miss Carol and what she was going through with the brain aneurysm. And man, God is so good. Amen. He's so good, and he's worthy of our praise. And uh, Dee Dee, Ms. Dee Dee reminded me last week when I saw her of just how good God has been to so many people in the last year, two, three years, that he just brought through some difficult stuff. Um, and he's, he's, he's our healer, and he's our great physician, and he's Lord and sovereign. And so it is good to see you all today. So praise the Lord for that. Um, all right, so we're going we're gonna to do something new this morning. Uh-oh is right. We're going we're gonna to do some new stuff on Sunday morning that I'm trying to do on a regular basis. So one of those is the first Sunday in October and then every other month going forward. So six times a year, we're going to do the Lord's Supper together. So instead of quarterly or when there's five Sundays in the month, we're going to try to do it six times a year, do it a little bit more often. So that's one thing. In a couple weeks, we're going to have somebody come up and share their testimony. So trying to incorporate testimonies into our worship service, at least on a monthly basis. We have the children's sermon. Um, we're going to have a missions emphasis at least once a month where we spend some time praying for a specific mission or mission focus. And so one thing I want to do on the first Sunday of the month when we don't have Lord's Supper is I want us to have a corporate time of prayer. But not where I'm up here praying and you're there hopefully praying. But I mean a corporate time of prayer. So what we're about to do and I apologize in advance, and in a way I don't, because this is going to make some of you uncomfortable, and it's okay to be uncomfortable because we're going to do it together, and we're going to pray together. In just a minute, I'm going to give you, tell you what to do, and then you're going to do it, and you're going to have about three to four minutes, and then I'm going to pray for us. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you organically where you are to get in some groups. Your group may be three people. Your group may be eight people. I don't want anybody left by themselves. If you see somebody who's here by themselves, bring them in. And organically in that group, I want you to pray. You're only going to have three or four minutes. So if everybody prays, it needs to be a short prayer. But I want everybody praying together. If you don't feel comfortable praying out loud, that's fine. You don't have to. Just be in a state of prayer. But I want us praying. I was in a church one time and they did this, and it was so powerful and impactful. It was uncomfortable at first. But man, the people of God crying out and praying to our God, there's something powerful about that. Now here's the emphasis. I want us focusing on the lost. We just sang about how our God saves. We just sang that he's the God of the city. So what I want your focus to be is to pray for the lost. 
So if there is somebody that you know in your family that is an unbeliever, this is the time right now to go to God and call them by name. In front of other people, just to say, God, I'm coming to you and I'm praying for my husband. I'm praying for my wife. I'm praying for my grandpa. Lord, they need Jesus. Will you please save them? Will you please work in their heart? So wherever you are, in just a moment, again, you're not going to have a lot of time. So move quickly. This isn't a time for discussion. You just gather somebody. Hopefully we'll take the lead and pray. If not, then you just pray quietly. But you pray together as a family or with other people that you don't know. So on the count of three... See how well you listen to instructions. And then listen, because this is going to be awkward, because Baptists, we have one person pray at a time. That's what we do. There should be, the goal is multiple people praying out loud at the same time. And when I come back up to pray, I'm not waiting for it to get quiet. I'm just going to come up and start praying. You may be mid-sentence. When, I'm, when I start praying, just stop. You can just stop. It's okay. You can just cut your prayer off. But I'm, I'm not going to say, hey, I'm going to stop. I'm just going to come pray. So we're going to pray together. Everybody understand all right, find you a group and let's start praying.
Father God, your word says that you came to seek and save the lost. God, the reality this morning is we can save no one. We live in a world that is lost, an unbelieving world, just in some conversations with some, some college students just a little bit ago, Lord, how just lost and confused this world is. And here we are in the midst of it, Lord, and we are called to follow you. We are called, as we will clearly see this morning in the scriptures, to abide in your word. By abiding in your word, that is evidence that we are truly your disciples. Jesus, you say that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And people are enslaved to sin. They are in bondage. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And there is not a persuasive argument enough. We cannot shout enough or convince anyone who is blind and in ignorance to believe. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So we are praying, we are seeking God that you would do what only you can do, and that is save. That the Spirit of God would remove the blinders, would cause those who are dead to be born again. But God, as you're doing that work, we do understand that we are called to go. That we are called to go make disciples. That we are called to pray. That we are called to share. So Father, one thing that I hope happens is we emphasize just a time of corporate prayer together is that will cause us to be more dependent upon you as a church and as individuals. Because we recognize, God, that apart from you, we can do nothing. But with you, God, nothing is impossible. God, you can do anything and everything. And right now, God, this morning, you could save anyone who is lost that is in this place or watching online, that is an unbeliever far from you, you can radically transform them this morning. So God, we pray that you would do that. Lord, as we go into a time of just continuing to worship, to sing together, Lord, it, it's perfect as we begin to sing, revive us again. Oh Lord, would you bring revival in the hearts of your sons and daughters. Revive us again, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Right, if you'll return to your seats and you'll stand and let's worship together.
Thank you, choir. All right, at this time, we have Children's Church. So if you will make your way in the back, we have two ages, our younger folks, pre-K three and four, and then our kindergarten through second. They're going to make their way out for Children's Church. If everybody else will take a copy of God's Word and turn to John, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. So next week, we will resume our study um, in Ephesians. And next week, when we resume that study, we're going to come to a passage of Scripture um, that has become any more very divisive, very controversial. Um, and we're going to spend a minimum of three weeks there and, and maybe longer. And so... In my quiet time, I've been working through the Gospel of John, and a couple weeks ago I read 
John chapter 8, and these verses really hit me. And as I was praying about what to preach today before we transition, Labor Day weekend, I, the, the Spirit just led me to these verses to kind of prepare us for where we're going. And so we're going to work our way through the verses, and then at the end for the last 10 minutes or so, I'm going to kind of talk about some things that we see here that I think will help us um, going forward. So let me begin by just reading um, for you some results from a survey back in 2020. It says, what is truth? Where do we find it? Well, a study from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University shows that some 58% of Americans say it's up to the individual to decide what is true or moral. The American Worldview Inventory 2020 concluded that belief in absolute moral truth rooted in God's Word is rapidly eroding among all American adults, whether churched or unchurched, within every political segment, within every age group. Shockingly and tragically, that does include American Christians who have historically said and believed that the Bible is the source of absolute truth. The study found, I'm going to read this twice, that evangelicals, defined as those believing the Bible to be true, the reliable Word of God, are almost as likely to reject absolute moral truth, 46%, as to accept it, 48%. The study found that evangelicals, defined as those believing the Bible to be the true, reliable Word of God, are almost as likely to reject an absolute moral truth established by God, 46%, as to those who accept it. That is heartbreaking. And it is a clear picture of what's going on in our world today, that even the church is walking away from absolute truth as defined by God, our Creator, in His Word. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, even if you don't, would you please stand in, reading of, in, in honor of the reading of God's Word, John 8, verse 31 through verse 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You may be seated. I want you to notice a couple things as we work our way through this. Number one, we don't have any notes on the screen this morning, but number one, I want you to notice the evidence of discipleship. The evidence of discipleship or the proof of discipleship. Jesus says in verse 31, or, or John, or the Spirit of God, leading John to kind of let us know what's going on. So Jesus said to the Jews, so Jesus is speaking to Jews who had believed him. They believed him. Now, if you go back to verse 30 of chapter 8, it says this. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Jesus is gaining followers. His disciples, we think disciples is the 12, but his disciples 
though those are the core 12, there's more disciples, and it's growing, right? Many people believed in him. Jesus recognizes, right? The crowds are growing, and so he says bluntly, honestly, if you look at verse right, 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So here's the question we have to ask based on Jesus' statement to those who believed in him. Who are the real, genuine, authentic disciples of Jesus? Who are they? How do we know them? Because the reality is many in Jesus' day and even in our day profess Christ. Maybe they declare themselves believers. Maybe they call themselves Christians. But obviously they don't all really believe. Jesus knows this. If you go back just a couple chapters, John chapter 6, verse 60, we read this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? They're hearing Jesus, they're like, man, this is tough, this is hard. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, not the 12, but the other disciples, the learners, the followers of Jesus, turned back and no longer walked with him. So it's clear Just because you say, hey, I'm following Jesus, just because you say you believe, doesn't mean you're actually in it to follow him. So they abandon him. Not all who believe are truly his disciples. Look, the reality is, maybe this is you, maybe you know somebody like this, that some people call out to Jesus, right? They were saved because a crowd was doing it. Maybe their girlfriend got saved and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, I better get saved or I'm in trouble. Or maybe they were at a revival and there was a group of friends that went forward. Or maybe the preacher just manipulated and just kept, kept going and these kids gave their life to Jesus because, well, I need to do this because this is what the pastor says I need to do. Or maybe people were saved because it's, it was advantageous to follow Jesus. There was a time in our country that it would have been advantageous to be a Christian. Like if you're a businessman and you went to church, right, that had some clout. Like, man, I can trust you. You're, you're a reliable guy. You're not going to try to steal money from me. We're living in a culture now where it is not advantageous to be a Christian. Used to, maybe you could go into a job interview and, you know, I go to church and like, wow, this is a moral guy. That's good. You tell somebody today that you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus. If they probe you more as to what that means, you're probably not going to get the job. It's just completely different. Some people call out to Jesus because they think, hey, Jesus can meet a need of mine. I'm going to lose my job. I may lose my house. I'm financially struggling. I got cancer. Jesus, you're the healer, so I'm going to call out to you. Will you heal me? But just like those in John 6, 66, it's not genuine, and they will abandon ship at the first sight of trouble. So Jesus, knowing this, makes a strong statement in verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples so who is the true disciple who is the follower who is the learner how do we know who the real disciples are well according to jesus here the true disciple of jesus will abide in jesus word and his teaching jesus says if you abide remain continue in my word if you remain in my teaching right then you are my disciple The true disciple of Jesus will accept his teachings and they will obey them. This is what Jesus said, I will submit myself to them and I will obey them. 
Jesus is clear, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So Jesus makes this incredible statement. Right? The crowds are growing. You don't say this kind of thing if you want to keep the crowds. Jesus is trying to weed out those who, who say they believe but don't really believe. And he says, if you abide, remain in my teaching, you are truly my disciples. And then he makes another incredible statement in verse 32. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. James Montgomery Boyce writes, You will not know all things, of course. You are not God. You are not omniscient. You're not all-knowing. You will not have the answer to every question. You will not know all things. But he says this, But what you do know will be certain. So the choir just sang that song. This is what we believe. The things that you believe, based upon your faith in Jesus, based upon his word, you will be certain. You will be convinced of them. You will stand upon them. You will stake your life upon them because this is the word of God. And so he promises this freedom. And then right off the bat, these Jews begin to refute Jesus. The word refute means to prove to be false or erroneous. They tried to prove Jesus in his statement to be false. He says, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. Jesus, we're Jews. We're descendants of Abraham. Literally means we are of the seed of Abraham. Look at this. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. Right off the bat, you think, you guys have lost your mind. What do you mean you've never been enslaved? You were enslaved in Egypt. You were enslaved to the Babylonians. You, you currently right now aren't really even free because the currency that you carry in your pockets have the emperor's face right engraved upon them. You're not really free. And so they say, what are you talking about, Jesus? We've, we've never been enslaved. And quickly you realize they're not talking politically. It's not like they've forgotten their history. They're talking spiritually. We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see, they believed we're descendants of Abraham. We have the law of Moses. Spiritually, we're free. How can you release and set free people who are already free? So what does Jesus do? He explains what he really means. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, say that word with me, Everyone, say it again, everyone, that included all of them and all of us, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So Jesus is clear. Look, guys, we're not talking political. We're talking spiritual. And you are enslaved because the reality is everyone who practices sin is enslaved to sin. You're a doulos. You're enslaved to sin. Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Look, the reality is if you were a slave, you were not a permanent member of the family. You could be sold at any time to a different family. But if you're a son, that's a different story. You have sonship. You have the promise of the inheritance. Now, many of the commentaries that I read said it's very likely, because they just appealed to Abraham, that Jesus is going back to Abraham. God had promised a son to Abraham. Everybody remember that? It's a covenant he makes with him. A son of promise. That son was supposed to come through Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah, it's taking a little bit long. We're impatient. 
Let's take matters into our own hands. And so the servant, Hagar, and Abraham hook up, right? They have a child named Ishmael. He's not the son of promise. He's a son, but he's a son of the servant, Hagar. Isaac comes along later. He's the son of promise. They don't say our father's Abraham, Ishmael. They say Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So they recognize the lineage and the promise. And so what Jesus could be saying to them is, listen, guys, you think that you're of the descendants of Abraham. You think that you're free because you're of Abraham. The reality is you're enslaved and you're more like Ishmael than you are Isaac. Well, that would have stung. That would have hurt them. But he wants them to see you can't claim freedom just because of Abraham. Because just because you're a descendant of Abraham doesn't mean that you are in the family and in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says, I can set you free, verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, here's the reality. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I can set you free. They don't think they need to be set free. We're good. We're fine. We're already spiritually free. But Jesus says, no, you can have freedom in me. So quickly, what does Jesus set us free from? Number one, Jesus sets us free from sin. Amen. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you and I, who commit sin, who are enslaved to sin because we practice sin, Jesus says, I can set you free. You can be delivered from that. William Hendrickson says, one is free when sin no longer rules over him and when the word of Christ dominates his heart and life. This morning, listen, you no longer have to be enslaved to sin. Not if you're in Christ. You need to understand Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been set free from the power of sin. Amen? You can walk in victory. You have been been set free from the penalty of sin. No longer under the wrath and condemnation of God through Jesus Christ's death in your place. You've been forgiven. You've been declared righteous. Set free from the penalty of sin, which is death. And one day, hallelujah, you'll be set free from the presence of sin. Amen? No more will there be sin through faith in Jesus Christ. But we've also been set free from self. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Christ sets you free, but not so that you can live however you want. Not so that you can use your freedom to, to serve yourself, but no, so that you can use your freedom to serve others. You've been set free. We also have freedom from Satan. We're going to get into Ephesians chapter 6 eventually. Man, Satan, the one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, the one who seeks to devour you like a roaring lion, the one who has all these fiery darts coming at you, you have been delivered from the dominion and the domain of Satan. You can resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So the Bible says, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You've also been delivered from the freedom from fear, specifically fear of death. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear dying because in Christ you're promised eternal life with him. So you're set free from these things and you're set free to serve and love Jesus. But there's one last one and this will transition us to what I want to focus on as we move into next week and that is this. When Christ sets you free, you are set free from ignorance. You are set free from ignorance. See, the reality is the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. 
apart from Christ, we're dead and we're ignorant. We don't know the truth. But what does Jesus say? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So looking ahead, three things as we look to begin to study next week. Number one is this. There is a truth. There is such a thing as absolute moral truth. We believe, the Scripture is clear, that God is our Creator, and God creates us as worshipers. We are all going to worship someone. We are all going to worship something. We all, every one of us in this room, we all hold to a set of truths or beliefs. Every one of us. We hold something valuable. We hold to certain beliefs. So what Jesus is saying, he says, you'll know the truth. There is such a thing as truth. Doesn't matter what the world says. The Bible says there is truth. And in that truth, there is freedom. There's freedom. But according to Romans chapter 1, what do we do? We try to suppress the truth. And people say things like this. Look, Christians, you religious people, why can't I just do what I want? Why can't I just do whatever I like to do? Here's the reality. What does Jesus say? You are, if you practice sin, you are enslaved to sin. So here's the reality. You will never do what you want or like to do if you don't know Christ. Hear me. You will always do what sin likes to do. It's not, why can't I just do what I want to do? Because what you want to do is exactly where sin will take you. It's exactly what sin wants you to do. So you're not doing what you want to do. You're enslaved. And if you're in bondage to sin, you're not free to do what you want to do. You will always do exactly what sin wants you to do. And truth is unwelcome to the sinful mind. The sinful, unbelieving mind does not want the truth. So what do we say? There is no absolute truth. There is no right or wrong. Yes, there is, and everyone knows there is. They can deny it, but you go far enough, at some point they'll acknowledge there's truth. Do you guys know about the fire at Walmart? Unless you're out of your mind, you would say that's morally wrong. Like, I can't believe a 14-year-old girl would go in and start a fire and could possibly kill people. Now, if you're out of your mind, you'd say, hey, she can do whatever she wants. I mean, there's no moral absolute truth. Most people would be like, that's wrong. People could have died. So you go far enough and they'll say, yeah, you're right. That's probably wrong. But who says it's wrong? We believe God's word says it's wrong. So here's where we're going to transition. Over the next three, four weeks, we're going to look at some stuff. Now, look, Ephesians 5, where we're going, is primarily about marriage. We're going to see husbands, we're going to see wives, we're going to see that marriage is really pointing us to Christ in the church. But in that, I think we're going to have to look at some other stuff because our world is so confused. So one thing we'll probably talk about over the next three or four weeks is something called complementarianism. You're like, compliment to what? Some of you know what complementarianism is, some of you don't. So we as a church hold to the Danvers statement of biblical manhood and womanhood. The first two affirmations in that statement are this. Both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, 
and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Here's what we believe the Bible teaches. Male, female are created equally. Men, you're not superior to women. Women, you are not inferior to men. Men, just because the Bible says you are to lead and wives you are to submit, that doesn't mean you can be a jerk. That doesn't mean you can say, hey, I'm in control, the Bible says, and I'm going to treat you how I want. No. We're created equally, but we are created different. We have different gifts, and God says we use those gifts differently. So the second affirmation is distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart. So we hold to complementarianism. That means that impacts the home and it impacts the church and ministry. And we'll get into some of what that looks like. This isn't something we're just making up. We believe this is biblical, and therefore we follow that. We're going to get into marriage. Who defines marriage? God is clear in his word. Marriage is between one man and one woman in a covenant under God. God defines that. That's controversial today. And I can't assume everyone in this room will agree to that statement. So we're going to unpack that. What does the Bible teach? We're going to probably have to talk some about gender and sexuality. Had some great conversations just a little bit with a couple college students. Taking some courses in a secular college class. And look, I believe they're grounded in what the Word of God says. But some of the stuff they're being taught, some of the stuff they're pushing with sexuality and gender. Listen, y'all. You take a stand upon God's word, and eventually they're going to come. Eventually. We, you can't hide anymore. And so we're going to talk about that. And the reason I'm doing this message today is simply for this point. Brothers and sisters, you and I must hold fast to the word of God. We must. You cannot compromise what God's word says. There is truth. You must know the truth. And that truth will set you free. C.H. Spurgeon said the gospel is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. You have to stand upon the gospel. You must speak the gospel. You must preach the gospel. And the gospel is what will do the saving and the transforming. I love what Francis Safer says. Christianity is not merely religious truth. It is total truth. Truth about the whole of reality. So what's happened for the last 30, 40, 50 years is people have tried to take religion, moral truth, and put it in the private realm. Fine, do whatever you want to do privately, but don't bring your beliefs out in the public square. But what Francis Schaeffer said is that the Bible is just not parts of truth, but it's total truth, meaning it speaks to all of reality. So you can't keep it in just the private realm when it speaks to how you live publicly. So we must know that there is truth. The second thing is you and I must abide in that truth. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the way, the truth, and the life. Ephesians 4, 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So hear me. I'm going to go through this quickly. When you believe and put your faith in Jesus, he becomes your Savior. Amen? He becomes Savior. Like he transforms you. Amen and amen. He alone saves us from our sins. 
but he also becomes your Lord, your master, and your ruler. Which means you must submit to his authority and you will take Jesus at his word. You will accept his teachings as truth. You will obey them. You will make the word of Christ the rule of your life. But just know this. Hear me. When you begin to commit yourself to the word, understand the world, your flesh, and the devil is always going to try to pull you back in. You say, Pastor, I'm struggling to read God's Word. And I'm struggling to consistently get into God's Word. Why would that be? Because you got a lot against you. you got the world against you. Like, man, I need to read the Bible, but, man, there's a football game on. Or, I need to read the Bible, but, man, i got all these things to do. Man, I need to read the Bible, but, man, i got some work to do. Or, I'm tired. The world, your beliefs, they're just against you. you got the flesh fighting against you. Anybody ever tried to read God's Word and you're just exhausted and you fall asleep? Like you're just physically tired. Or maybe you just don't really feel like doing it. And maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're nervous. You're anxious. You're depressed. And all of these things are just, maybe mentally you're just struggling to focus. And then you got the devil against you. We're going to talk about it in Ephesians 6. There's victory. But understand, when you're in that Word, Satan's going to try to pull you out. Over and over and over And so we have to trust in the Spirit of God that He who is in us is greater than He that's in the world. And so that we can trust and rely on Him. So hear me before we get into the last point. Um, Most of the people that are in the class where I was talking about the college students, most of those people probably are unbelievers. It's taught by an unbelieving professor, they're lost. That doesn't surprise me. It does not surprise me that lost people believe what they believe. It's just becoming more open, more acceptable, but it does, it's, it's the same thing it's been for hundreds of years. They just change it a little bit and re, re-box it, repackage it a little bit, but it's the same stuff. The concerning part is that more and more Christians are doing it. I'm not concerned about the lost world. They need Jesus. I know why they believe what they believe. The God of this world has blinded them. The concern, based upon the beginning, that there are just as many Christians who will say, I don't believe that there is absolute truth, though God's word is clear that there is, then there are as Christians who say they do believe. And that's why we're going to spend a lot of weeks just unpacking this, because I want to make sure that us as believers, we understand what God's word says. And the last point, the truth sets us free. Freedom from sin, we already talked about that. In addition, you get forgiveness. You receive forgiveness of God. You have son, if you become a son and a daughter, then you have the promise of eternal glory so this morning you can be set free this morning you can walk and live in the freedom that christ offers you can believe in jesus you can let his word abide in you but just know this you cannot have jesus apart from his word and his teaching you cannot have the jesus of the bible the god the son of god the son of man You cannot have this Jesus apart from his word. And that was the problem with the people that Jesus was speaking to. Because if you look at verse 37, what does he say? I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word finds no place in you. My word finds no room in you. 
But that Greek word can also have the idea of my word makes no progress in you. The reason you're not really believing and trusting is because the word has no part of your life. You're not being transformed through the written word of God. You're not in the word of God. And Jesus is saying, listen, my disciples, my followers, how do we distinguish the real, the authentic from the fake and the counterfeit? It's who's in the word of God. Who's letting the word of God dwell in them? Who's letting the word of God take hold of them to change them? Because that's the genuine followers of Christ. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So brothers and sisters, what are you going to do with the word? I hope everyone in this room says you believe in Jesus. Praise the Lord. But are you letting the word abide in you are you abiding in the word because if you are not in the word and the word is not in you then it's just a matter of time before you are persuaded and you walk away from the truthfulness of god's word we're seeing it happen left and right let me close with the jc ryle quote he says the most dangerous spiritual condition any person can ever be in is where you're halfway to christ I would say these Jews were halfway to Christ. They had believed some of what he said. They, they gave assent. And maybe that's you. You believe some things about Jesus to be true, but they not, were not really believing and following, and Jesus recognized that. He says the most dangerous place to be is halfway to Christ. Let's listen to what he says before we pray. Inclined to Jesus, inclined to the truth about Jesus, wanting what Jesus proves and what he offers, but not willing to give into the full demands that he lays on the center of repentance and faith in him. Declaration of his lordship and turning from sin toward righteousness. Say, I want parts of Jesus, but man, that repentance and faith, that lordship where Jesus has authority over my life and I do what his word says, like willingly, like I enjoy, like I love obeying his word, I, I don't want that. Like turning from my sin and turning to Christ and righteousness? No part of that, please. I want the other part of Jesus. But what does Jesus say? My disciples will abide in my word, and they will abide in my teaching. So you can't have it both ways. And So what do you do? How do you respond? Number one is have you given your life to Jesus? Have you confessed your sins, repented of your sins, and you have put all of your faith, all of your trust in Jesus, not because of what you can get out of it, but because you have seen who he is. You believe who he is, you believe what he said he did for you, and you're all in. You know you're enslaved to sin, and you want that freedom. And brothers and sisters, lost people, if you do that, man, he will save you, amen? He'll save you. It's a free gift of God. You just must believe and trust. But hear me, once he saves you, he wants to transform you. He puts the Spirit of God in you to change you. It's the Spirit of God who leads us in truth and wisdom and understanding. And so as we enter into what will be some difficult verses for some people, what's going to be some controversial verses for some people in the church and outside of the church, here's my prayer that every single one of us can say, 
I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but He is also my Lord. And what I did believe does not line up with God's Word. And so I will not change God's Word to line up with me, but I will repent and line myself up with God's Word and what He says about these things. And if we suffer for it, we suffer. If we lose our job, we lose our job. Whatever happens, happens. We're going to believe in Christ. If we as a church one day lose our tax-exempt status, that'll have an impact. But we're not going to change what we believe about God's Word because God's Word speaks to every area of your life. So do you believe His Word? Do you believe in Jesus? How you respond to that? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this last song of invitation, what I believe we're going to sing, Lord, I need you. And God, that, that's our prayer. Lord, we need you. We need you to save us. We need you to remove the blinders from our eyes. We, we are dead. We need you to give us life. And then, Lord, once you give us life, we need the Spirit of God to give us instruction. We need the Spirit of God to give us wisdom because we don't understand. We don't comprehend the Word of God. The temptation is always to, to alter it and distort it to line up with what we want it to say. But, Father, we come. You are the sole authority. You are the creator. You are the one who says this is right and this is wrong. And who are we to alter or change that because we want it to say something different? So, Father, we need you. We need you right now to bring about repentance in our hearts. We need you right now to lead us to the place of confession. We need you, God, right now that if we are not in the word of God, if we are not abiding in the word, we need you, Spirit of God, to convict us. Make us uncomfortable this morning. Make us uncomfortable. Then provide us with that forgiveness that we need. And then, God, change our desires. And give us that wisdom and understanding. Open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things in your law. That we would delight in the law of God, in the word of God. Father, speak to our hearts as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. The altar is always open. I'm here at the front if you need to come and make a decision, whether it's to profess faith in Jesus or to join the church here. What God's doing, you respond as we sing.
Amen, amen. You may be seated. Uh, let's do a little bit more of praising the Lord together before uh, we close our service. Uh, so if you guys will come. So this is Gavin and Brittany Grissom. Um, they got two little ones that you've seen, um, Gunner and Steele. Um, so they moved to Noonan how long ago? Four or five, six months? Back, back in May. So they've been here for a little while, um, related to some other folks in the church, but we won't hold it against them. Gina's incredible. It's Gina's brother, and then you got Paul as well. <laughs> Just kidding, brother. We needed to laugh after that intense message, right? We needed to laugh. So, but they, they were coming, been coming. Uh, so we had a chance a couple times. Gavin and I spoke, and then Brittany and I talked last week, and they are both believers in Christ, followers of the Lord Jesus. They followed him in baptism, and they're coming this morning because they want to join Northside in what God's doing here. So will you celebrate in their decision as they come this morning? So they're members of a church up in the Chesapeake area of, of Virginia, and so they're coming by letter uh, to join again what God's doing here. And so I try to remind us in moments like this, What's our responsibility? Our responsibility as church family is now they're part of Northside is that we love on them, encourage them to use their gifts to grow in Christ. Um, and then they come and they're going to do the same. They're going to pour into you and, and pour into this church and, and love on us. And together we get to be the body of Christ. And so uh, excited about that and thankful that God uh, brought you all here. So you all can have a seat. So what I'd like for you to do uh, before you head to the restaurant, before you head for your Sunday nap, uh, wherever it may be, just to come by, um, just to shake hands and just say, hey, we're glad to have you. Uh, we're going to pray for you, want to love on you any way that we can. Uh, because one thing, this is family, amen? You are, you're the body of Christ. Um, I was reminded of that just, just the other day. I think it was six years, just a couple days ago, since Landon made his profession of faith in Christ. And so I was texting him, and, and just said, hey, man, on that day, I became your brother. And it's unique to be a father, but then also a brother. But I became his brother in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. This is family. You have blood family, but this is family. And so we serve one another, we love one another, and just want to remind you of that often. Um, so just a couple more things. We made some announcements earlier. Number one, we have no evening activities tonight, so enjoy your afternoon our Sunday night activities will pick up next week. One last thing. In the Fellowship Hall, we have several tables that are filled with Bible study books. So Lifeway for years now has been sending us quarterly all these books. They accumulated in a storage room. And I was like, man, they don't need to be here. They need to go. You all need to take them. So they're free. So they're like six, eight weeks. They're just books. You can do Bible studies, read scripture. If that interests you, Please go take one, take five, take ten, because if you're not interested, they're not going back in the storage closet. I can tell you that. They'll find another home somewhere. So they're yours. So please see them. Chris is the deacon of the week. So if you'll stand, again, come love on Gavin and Brittany before you leave, and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Real quick, on the inside of the uh, church bulletin, there's people to pray for for upward. These are, our These are half of the volunteers. Those half of them are next week, but um, do be in prayer for them. I always tell the coaches every year that we're first and foremost evangelists and the coaches second. But I, I'm so appreciative of the people who volunteer, the coaches, the assistant coaches, the refs, uh, the field guys, the concession stand workers, parking lot guys, the people who come to evaluations. It takes all that to make this thing work. So op opening day is upon us. It'll be this this Saturday. So uh, be in prayer that uh, the gospel will go forth and people will hear and 
be convicted and saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here today in church. Uh, thank you for the word of God we heard. Um, I pray that uh, we would uh, know the truth, Lord, and the truth would set us free. I pray we would uh, uh, trust Scripture above all else and uh, make it a lamp into our feet and a light into our path and uh, let it uh, guide us into what's right and what's wrong in all areas of life, not just, not just one compartmentalized area. Uh, keep us safe and bring us back uh, later on this week. I ask this according to your will in Jesus' name. Amen.